Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, episode 45, podcast number 45. I was going back into my archives, doing some homework on my previous programs, and uh, I did a count. This is episode 45, so it has taken us what, 44 podcasts to get through 14 chapters. And that's what happens when you go through any one book verse by verse to really capture the essence of what the author is trying to tell us and certainly apply that to our everyday life. So we have been taking St. Paul's theology, reflecting with it, and then with that, applying it to our everyday life. So we're not here on Seeds of Truth talking in the abstract now, Debbie was with me yesterday evening, and we were wrapping up our discussion on charismatic and spiritual gifts with a discussion on the role of women, right? And as we were doing so, we were talking about uh, the life of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is, is poured into our heart. And there, my friends, is where I want to start, because with chapter 15, you have a chapter on the resurrection of Christ. And without the resurrection and certainly the ascension, what do you have? Well, <laughs> what does Paul say? Nothing, right? The resurrection and the ascension of Christ was necessary for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 15 is so, so important to us. A, a chapter where Paul defends the doctrine of the resurrection against attack and misunderstanding, right? Working forward from the resurrection of Christ, Paul insists that our bodies will be raised immortal and glorified for life in heaven. This belief for Paul is so important that to deny the resurrection is to destroy the essence of the gospel. To deny the resurrection is to destroy the essence of the gospel. And certainly that is something we will get into in great detail. Now, before we get into the verses themselves, we should say something else here, because Paul began his letter with a powerful proclamation of the crucified one, right? We talked about that in great detail. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now he concludes and climaxes with a proclamation of the risen one. So in chapter 1, you have this reflection on the crucified one. And in chapter 15, we have a reflection on the resurrected one, the risen one. But even more important, these pages are, we could say, a manifesto of the resurrection of all those who are Christ's members, right? This is what this chapter is about. As the apostles' discourse on the cross was occasioned by the Corinthians' misunderstanding of the sacrificial death of Jesus, so this particular section is occasioned by the misunderstanding of the reality of the resurrection. Now, we could say that this misunderstanding is probably twofold. First, 
the Greek mind had no conception of bodily life after death. Uh, Plato held the soul to be immortal, uh, but he certainly did not think of any one person reclaiming his bodily life. And, and second, the experience of the Spirit in the Corinthian community was so strong that some of them considered in itself to be the resurrection that Paul was proclaiming. But in Paul's preaching, my friends, he wanted us to see that Christians have passed from death to life. They have died with Christ and risen with him. Certainly, it would have been but a small step to conclude with a purely spiritual understanding of the resurrection of the body. But Paul says, not so. Paul says, not so. So let us read, oh, let's see here, chapter 15. We'll, we will go ahead and read verses 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God, which is with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preach, and so you believed. Okay. So what's going on here? Well, the Corinthians seem to have forgotten the very heart of his gospel. Yes, that he's preaching, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. He reminds them of what happened. He preached, they received, and now in the gospel, they what? They stand. What do we read in verse 1? I preached to you which you indeed received, in which you also stand. So we hear the Word of God preached. We believe it based upon what has been given to Paul. And now we bear witness to that belief and how we rise up huh? and how we stand. So the emphasis falls on the last word, huh? holding on to the original proclamation. It brings salvation. It brings eternal life. But... They should not presume that once saved, always saved, right? What did we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12? Whoever thinks he is standing secure should take care not to fall. Salvation is a process. We have talked about this a great deal. What does Paul say? You are being saved. What does he say elsewhere? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as children of God. So salvation is a process in which for Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, 
in which their ongoing fidelity is necessary. And we should also say decisive. But they must hold it exactly as the word I preach to you, Paul says. That is, in the form in which Paul preached it. Otherwise, you believed in vain. Brothers and sisters, salvation is tied to an event. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as formulated by, of course, the apostolic tradition. To deviate from it is to imperil one's eternal salvation, is to put our salvation on the line. So our salvation is tied to what? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how we bear witness to that. It's interesting here. The Greek word for preaching, eugandalizo, it is also the Greek to the word evangelization, okay? So to preach the gospel is to what? Evangelize. Evangelization can never be removed from preaching. I've done a lot of talking on evangelization and preaching and the importance of looking at evangelization in its many permutations, but it can never be removed from preaching itself. Because, my dear friends, evangelization is always caught up in the proclamation of our Lord's saving love. Our evangelization can never be removed from the great herald, the great proclamation of the one overarching truth that Jesus died for our sins. Now, there's different ways to go about evangelization, to engage someone so as to go deeper into that conversation, to get someone to open up, right? There, there are methods to go about doing that. But be rest assured, the method never replaces the message itself. Incidentally, when you break down the Ugandalizo, that Greek word, <laughs> it's two compound words meaning uh, messenger of the good, right? Messenger of the good or good message, but really messenger of the good is a better translation because it's about the message itself, the message of our Lord's saving love. All right, how about uh, verses 3 and following? Well, it's interesting. The form of verses 3 to 7 is a series of uh, doctrinal elements that sounds like a creed, really. If you go into all the commentaries, they talk about this. A formula already well established before St. Paul. And it is not a formulation of abstract truths, but a recitation of God's saving deeds. What does the creed testify to? What is of first importance to Paul's message? You know, the many instructions that St. Paul gives in this letter all flow to and from this source. He handed on what he also received. The word received, we've talked about this, uh, the Latin there, tradere, which literally means to hand on. It's where we get the word tradition and ultimately the larger phrase, sacred tradition. In Paul's letters, we have mostly his teaching and, and little of his initial proclamation with which he won converts. But here in these five verses, you have a, a nutshell which meticulously follows the pattern of, of how those first Christians evangelized. 
First, to proclaim that what? What were we just talking about? Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. You know, how did the early church know that the death of the master was just not the unfortunate execution of a prophet who claimed to be divine, but actually the most important event in the history of the world? Well, it was based on what the master himself said, that he would shed his blood for, what did Matthew say in chapter 26, verse 28, for the forgiveness of sins. And they realized with the master's help, and of course, that of the Holy Spirit, after his resurrection, that these events were prefigured, prophesied in the Old Testament in accordance with the Scriptures. That is what Paul wants us to see, that when you contemplate the meaning of the resurrection in the light of the Old Testament, you see that this was in accordance with sacred Scripture, particularly in the prophecy of uh, the suffering servant found in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, right? A prophecy that when you sit with it can have a huge impact on your faith. Let us go there now. Chapter 52, verses 13 to chapter 53, verse 12. He was pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds, we were healed. We'd all gone astray like sheep, all following our own way. But the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. By making his life as a reparation offering, the Lord's will shall be accomplished through him. My servant, the just one, shall justify the many. Their iniquity shall he bear. Of course, many other passages speak of the sufferings of this just person, especially in the Psalms, if you were to go to Psalm 22, uh, Psalm 69, uh, Psalm 88. Now, unlike the, the simple past tenses used for our Lord's death and burial, Paul does something here in verse 4. Was raised. Was raised is actually in the perfect tense, thus meaning what? has been raised, indicating his permanent and ongoing presence in the church, right? This is what St. Paul wants the Corinthians to see. The early church understood the resurrection to be in accordance with the scriptures, probably in light of the suffering servant who would be raised and greatly exalted, right? Paul also notes here the third day. What does the third day refer to? Well, we know what that refers to. It refers to the morning of our Lord's resurrection and the discovery of the empty tomb which would soon be referred to as, what do we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10? The Lord's Day. Interestingly here, my friends, the third day was understood as according to the Scriptures, probably in reference to Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, a prophet for the resurrection. Hosea spoke of Israel's being chastised by the Lord, but on the third day he will raise up. But there is also a cluster of Old Testament texts that eventually enriched uh, the church's understanding of the third day. Certainly in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, the third day is the first appearance of life on earth. The church fathers uh, engage this text to see how this is a prefigurement to uh, the new life in Christ and us becoming a new creation in Christ. On the third day, Joseph releases his brothers from prison. 
the Lord manifests himself in glory on Mount Sinai on the third day. The Israelites prepare to break camp and cross the Jordan on the third day. Jonah, of course, was released from the belly of the great fish on what day? The third day. All of these are a type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, speaking to, we could say, how God manifests his activity here on earth and most perfectly in the resurrection. Now, in verses 5 to 6, the listing of those to whom the Lord appeared is not exhaustive, but as we speak to it out from the New Testament, certainly official, canonical. In my rereading of this text, the verse that really struck me was more than 500 brothers at once. (laughs) And this is the only time this is mentioned in the New Testament. And quite honestly, my friends, I forgot about this verse. So when I read this verse, I was going back and doing my homework on this verse and just struck by it, how these 500 would have been testifying, right? The Latin there, testimonia, uh, testifying to what? But the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does uh, Paul say? That most of these witnesses were still alive, although some had fallen asleep but most were still alive. Most were out testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Imagine if Jesus appeared to 500 people in your local community and 500 people from different families. Imagine the kind of impact that would have on your community. I'm just thinking about that here in our uh, city of Chico. There's approximately 90,000 people in the city of Chico. If God appeared to 500 different people in the city of Chico, what do you think would happen? It would be one thing to hear it from one person, two people, five, maybe 10. You know, 10 would be pretty convincing, but 500, 500 different people testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you not think that would impact your local community? Do you not think (laughs) That would have an impact upon your local diocese. Brothers and sisters, think about it. Do not think that would impact your state. 500 people. And it's just not there. Hey, guess what I saw today? (laughs) No. It was, you're going to have to sit down. Because I have something to share with you. And you would be sharing it with a glow. You would be sharing it with a fervor. You'd be alive in the Holy Spirit because you encountered God in the most profound and overwhelming way. Your testimonia would be convincing because it would come from a conviction. This is what was going on in the early church with those 500 people. Okay? They were a living witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul mentions James here in verse 7. Just a footnote, this is probably the brother of the Lord. Um, He assumed leadership of the Jerusalem community when Peter departed on mission to other locations. We see him rise up in Acts 15 at the great council of Jerusalem, which really established (laughs) the universal nature of the church, right? Because what was the issue in Acts 15? But the question of circumcision versus baptism, where James was the one to stand up, right? Stand up and quoting the prophet Amos saying, Jesus Christ is the son of David who's come to establish 
a new covenant, a new universal international covenant. And the sign of this new covenant is no longer circumcision, but baptism. Because in baptism, we have been incorporated into the very life of God, the very life of love. So James is probably the one mentioned here. Now, what about verse 8? This, as to be one born abnormally. Uh, the Greek word there probably uh, best translates as late born or born overdue. Okay, this speaks to uh, St. Paul's late conversion and this whole language of birth uh, very much is caught up in, well, this new birth in Christ that we have been adopted by Christ as spiritual sons and daughters of God. Um, so Paul is very certainly very specific there. And it's interesting because in verses 9 to 10, he highlights that he was the one to persecute the church of God. And the only reason why he is no longer persecuting the church of God and is now a great apostle for his church is because of what? God's grace. God's grace. By the grace of God, can I now do what I do? I was mercifully treated. And only in God's grace can I do what I do. I love that verse. By the grace of God, I am what I am. We should wake up each and every morning proclaiming this truth. By the grace of God, I am what I am. If you're looking for a verse to put over your door or to put into the corner of your mirror, let it be that one. By the grace of God, I am what I am. We are only going to become the person that God is calling us to be if we understand that becoming is an act of God's grace. That is, becoming that person that God is calling us to be. Because remember, my friends, there is a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be. And to use the word ought is to suggest what that there is and is, and that is equals Christ. We can only be Christ for others if we are living in God's grace. I toil harder than everyone else. Is Paul being prideful here? Yes, but in its positive sense. You know, you read this text and you say, gosh, Paul, <laughs> what's up with that, you know? I've toiled harder than everyone else. He's just making a statement of fact, but he's doing so in God's grace. And there is a humble disposition here, huh? He has already established that. I am what I am because of God's grace. I cooperate with God's grace, but even that cooperation is an act of God. Amen to that. Verse 11, whether it be I or they, so we preach, and so you believed, right? Our preaching, my friends, can be salvific. This is why we must understand the urgency of the new evangelization and this call we have been endowed with, this baptismal call we have been endowed with to preach the good news, to preach the transforming message of God's saving love. You know, I want to close with a challenge to you. And it's a challenge that I put before me each and every day because I fail each and every day. And it comes in the form of a question. 
why do I get up each and every morning? Why do I do what I do? What motivates me to do what I do? Am I frustrated in my day because people are getting in the way of what I want to do? Are we living in our ego drama, right? (laughs) The play that we write, the play that we produce, and above all else, the play that we star in. Or, Or is our day about what God wants us to do? Are we present to others as much as we can possibly be present to others? Are we living in the theodrama, the drama that God writes, God produces, God directs, and above all, the play that God stars in? I've talked about this before, but I I bring it back this evening to wrap up our reflection because in the light of verse 11 and what Paul is saying here, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. We have to appreciate the urgency that is this call we have to be present to others and to preach the good news, preach the saving message. Be sensitive to where they are at in their faith. Accompany them. Take them by the hand. Get to know their story. Get to know their journey. Don't overwhelm them. Don't be the hammer to the nail. But as Peter reminds us, with gentleness and reverence, proclaim the good news and do so with conviction. Conviction is the natural outgrowth to a life in God, to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Bring Jesus to others. Preach that message and do so lovingly. Amen. Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift to just to be able to reflect with the richness of your word, your saving word, that when we contemplate with it, we might find new life in it, a life that impacts our daily journey with you and with others around us, Uh, those that you bring to us. Let us be present in your grace, Heavenly Father, to those who come before us each and every minute of each and every day, that we might be open to how you want to use us and how you use others to help us (laughs) in your plan of salvation. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.